a Podcast One production. If you've ever watched Question Time at Parliament House, it's hard not to think of it as the human version of feeding time at the zoo. The zoo we're talking about in this episode is actually the House of Representatives, where all the elected local members gather to govern Australia or sit in opposition. So it's an important place. But what do they do aside from yell over the top of each other? How does the place run? Why does it run like it does? My next guest sat in the chamber for 18 years, and for some of that time, she was actually the one to try and keep order in the joint as Speaker of the House. Anna Burke, thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. 18 years makes me think you're either very patient or very committed or very both. Or very old, one or the other, I'm not sure. But it was a, it was an honour and a privilege. And 18 years is a pretty long time. The average span for most politicians is five. Um, but once you're sort of there, you do get sort of the idea that sticking around and seeing things through is a really good thing, especially when, as I did, you got voted into opposition. You want to hang around to be in government. You want to be on those treasury benches and actually see things get done. So... Give us a, a wider scope before we get into the, the nitty-gritty of things. Why is the House so important in the role of Australian politics and, and has the role of the House changed over time? We have a bicameral system of government in Australia. So two houses, as you rightly say, the green and the red. Going back to the old, if you want to go into politics 101, what we would refer to as the Washminster system, part Washington, part Westminster. So both houses in Australia are voted by the people. The Green House is the most important because it's where government is formed. The houses are still vitally important, even though executive government, so i.e. the government of the day, the Prime Minister and all those ministers, seem to carry more weight. The Parliament still has a vital role to play. And over the last couple of years, because of the crossbenches, the people not belonging to the government or the opposition have carried sway, the House has become even more important. And I think as an institution, we should respect and honour that. The House of Representatives and the Senate get voted in by the public in different ways. The Senate is on a a state-based system, if I'm not wrong, and the House of Representatives is by electorate and Australia is divided into these certain amount of electorates. Is there some kind of, in essence, rivalry between members of the House of Representatives and people in the Senate to say that we're more important than you? Oh, look, there's definitely some rivalry and I don't go with the Keating view that the Senate is unrepresented swill. Um, <laughs> I, I think the Senate's a vitally important checks and balance. And because both houses are elected, yes, uh, in the lower house, it's uh, by proportional representation, i.e., you know, you vote for me. You walk into a polling booth, it's actually my name on the ballot paper. It says Anna Burke next to it, ALP. You're not voting for the party. You're actually voting for the person who's going to represent you in that seat. So it does carry some weight insofar as I actually had to go out there and hawk myself amongst 100,000 people and go, look at me, look at me, I'm great, vote for me, vote for me. Um, It's a really weird experience actually. But the (laughs) senators, they just, you know, they sit on a ticket. They usually represent a party. You vote predominantly in Australia above the line, which means you say, oh, look, you know, I like the Labor, I like the Libs, I like One Nation... Uh, I don't believe I said that. But anyway, you know, you might feel that you would like to vote for one of those other parties. And so I think the Senate's, from my viewpoint, really important because it it's that checks and balance. Nothing can happen without that group then scrutinising the legislation passed by the House. In Australian politics, it's very rare for one party to have a majority in both houses. In my 18 years, I only saw it for a limited time when Howard had, the Libs had control of both the House and the Senate 
and poor legislation passed because there wasn't checks and balances. But those of us sitting on the green chairs, yeah, we kind of think we're a bit more special because we create the government of the day. When you originally get in, um, you were, what, mid-90s that you got voted into the seat of Chisholm, East Melbourne, uh, Labor Party. Great, I'm going to make change here. I'm, I'm going to do things. Is it a bit overwhelming, though, when you, when you walk into the place for the first time and, and trying to get your head around the inner workings as well as the, the greater reason why you're there? Oh, look, it was all all-consuming. At 98, I, you know, I describe myself as the Stephen Bradbury of politics um, <laughs> in lots of ways, uh, both as speaker and as the member. I never thought I was going to win. I distinctly remember telling my husband, it's okay, I can't win. So, you know, I actually rang a friend who was a senator, bad mistake, and said, what does a member of parliament actually do? Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into this gig, what's the job description? His great advice was, a big white car will come for you. It'll take you to the airport and you'll fly to Canberra. I thought, oh, great, I can do that. No no worries. But, yeah, you arrive and you get a whole induction for about a day and a half about the weird and wonderful machinations of, you know, parliamentary democracy and how it works. Um, and then you have this sort of schismic relationship. You have sort of really two distinct roles, one where you're in Canberra and one when you're in your electorate office as the Member of Parliament. They're really two distinct things. Nobody ever really explains it to you. Um, And uh, 18 years later, it was still a bit of a mystery. And for quite a bit of it, I was in charge. So it's a bit of a worry, really. We'll, We'll get to when you're in charge in a moment. But just the machinations of being there as a, a newbie, if you like, what was the one thing that hit you between the eyes and thought, I did not know that, I did not even think of that, but is that actually how it works? Oh, look, there are a couple of gotcha moments. Um, second or third day in Parliament, I've walked into the chamber and everybody's yelling at me, speakers on their feet, speakers on their feet. And I'm going, yeah, do Freddie. And then somebody suddenly yells out, sit down, you idiot. Oh, okay. Um, It hadn't sunk in that one of the absolute cardinal sins is standing up when the speaker's on their feet. The speaker stands, everybody else in the house has to sit down. Somehow that had just gone over with the blur of everything else. Rule number 101, uh, (laughs) when the speaker's on their feet, you all sit down. It's a way of controlling order or that they're saying something so important the whole house has to listen. Um, The next time was when Howard during a division, stuck a piece of paper on his head. I'm sitting there going, by now I'd learnt not to ask anybody what was going on because then it appeared you really had no idea. But somebody else asked behind me, which is very helpful, why is the Prime Minister sitting there with a piece of paper (laughs) on his head? Because during a division, you can't stand to get the attention of the Speaker. So to get the attention of the Speaker, you doff your head. You put something on your head so that you can have a point of order in the middle of a division. It's an ancient tradition going back to Westminster days where all the blokes, because they're all blokes, had hats. If they wanted to draw the speaker's attention, they'd whack their hat on. So nowadays it's a piece of paper. What's a division, by the way? What was he trying to do? Oh, division. My apologies. Um, again, you, you. after a while, you assume everybody knows this. Yeah, that's why I'm I here. <laughs> <laughs> no, and congratulations. And to everybody listening to this, because all of us rock up into that ballot box every three years, we vote, and we really have no idea why or how or what it's doing. So to everyone listening, you know, you get the big gold star. <laughs> um, a division's a vote. So in the House of Representatives in the Senate, you divide. So if you call for a division, the Speaker yells out, is a division required? 
uh, ring the bells and then the bells ring and everyone rushes in. It's called division because the house divides the eyes to the right of the chairs, the nose to the left. Again, going back to Westminster days, and if anybody's been watching what's been going on with uh, the UK House of Commons at the moment, they literally yell out divide and they go to either end of the room because mm. there's 650 members, they can't all fit. So they literally divide. They go into a little chamber, all the people voting yes and all the people voting no. Still in Australia, same in the UK, it's not electronic. You literally do a head count. Everyone divides. And then you work out what's going on and then throw things over to the Senate. Is I guess that's how it works when you divide and conquer with a bill and then you, you send it on to the Senate to get through. Is that how it all works? Well, you know, I'm glad you said you understand what's going on because it wasn't until about 12 months after I'd been there that I really kind of comprehended, you know, being a member of a party, you just follow the pack, really. You know, you're all sitting on one side, right, that's where I'm meant to be, okay? Um, within the Labor Party, we have caucus solidarity for most bits of legislation. So I would vote the way the party was voting. So you just follow the herd. It wasn't until much later on that I became interested and you would actually know why are we devote, voting? What's going on now? And often there's procedural things and steps and you're, you're voting on an amendment, this, that and the other. So you might be down there for 20 votes and eventually some bright sparkle at the back of the room going, what was that all about, you know? I always felt for independence because they had to stay on top of it. They actually had to know which vote was happening, which amendment was being moved, where they wanted to be each time. The major parties just follow the crowd. How big a deal is it then if you're a member of a party and the party with the most members in that House of Representatives governs. So they're in charge, essentially. How intimidating, though, is it if you're sitting inside the walls of a party and you go, you know what, I so strongly disagree with what we're talking about here and the way that we're going that I'm going to step outside that. What's that process like, both from a functional aspect of being in government and also a personal matter as well of, of dealing with the, the eyes and the daggers that might be thrown your way? Oh, it's incredible. Um, so within the Labor Party, as I said, we, we had caucus solidarity. If I voted against the party on issues where I didn't have a conscience vote, I could be thrown out of the party. So for me, that presented some challenges, particularly around legislation in to do with asylum seekers. So I would vehemently argue my case inside the tent inside caucus with the shadow minister, with the minister. But at the end of the day, I would vote with the party. On occasions, I abstained. I just didn't go vote. Um, on what? Like, can you give us an example what you, you stayed on, on out asylum, of? On, on asylum seeker issues. Okay. Um, so, um, uh, so there were some different things that we were approaches we were taking and I just was not prepared to be there. Uh, so I just didn't go vote and then would have the whip call up and say, where, where was you? And I'd be, oh, I was just not there. Who's the whip? Um, uh, at that stage, so that within each party, there is a person who's called the whip, literally because hanging out in their office is a big whip. Um, so they're <laughs> the person who literally corrals you, you know? With the whip, to, physically or...? Well, no, usually with a stern email or okay. a nasty or, you know, just the glare or you'd miss out on things. But you need party discipline. If anybody looks at what goes on in the states, they don't have party discipline. They don't really follow party lines. So individuals can do whatever they like, which at one level's, you know, as it should be because you're representing your electorate. But on the whole, then things don't get done because you don't have mass numbers. So for Labor Party, it was, you know, you voted or you're out. Within the Liberal Party, they technically had a free vote, except, of course, uh, this 
goes off the track, but if, you know, in relationship to the same-sex marriage debate, marriage equality, where somehow they all lost their individual vote, but uh, that's another story. So within the Liberal Party, yes, you don't have to vote with the party and you could cross the floor. And I saw some incredibly brave individuals do that on occasion. I saw some members of the Nats cross the floor. So literally, you're sitting in the parliament with all your colleagues and you don't go sit with them, you go sit with what would be considered the enemy, i.e. the opposition. They were so passionate about the concern for their communities, they didn't vote with the government of the day. Um, They sat and the bills failed. I saw that on a couple of occasions, again, with some incredibly courageous Liberal Party members, on again, on asylum seeker issues. They'd literally, you'd have to see them walk across the floor and sit with the other side. Um, so, yeah, it is a fairly daunting thing. Most people don't do it easily. If you use it as a bit of a chess move, as a bit of a threat, then it loses its its potency because it really should be about your personal convictions or, you know, representing your electorate appropriately. talking a lot about the role of a a representative of the House of Representatives, a member of parliament inside Canberra, but what about balancing that with what you have to look after in terms of what your electorate wants? Because they're the ones that put you there in the first place. Did you find it's difficult to balance that or is it a pretty seamless procession? Oh, no, it's like two different worlds. Like there's Canberra where you're there with actually colleagues and people and you have this sort of sense of belonging to something and then there's you and your own electorate. I mean, you could do absolutely nothing. You probably wouldn't get re-elected, but there's nothing that says you've got to do anything. So um, every federal member of parliament gets an office in their electorate, gets a self-drive car and four staff. It's a very good gig um, and we are very well rewarded in that regard compared to a lot of members of parliament across the world. So in your electorate, it really is about what your electorate is. For me, you know, Metro Melbourne, my electorate was 20 minutes end to end. I had a friend who got elected the same time as I did from far north Queensland. It took her eight hours to get round to her electorate. You know, so size matters, community matters. For me, it really divided into two municipal areas, people who lived in Whitehorse and people who lived in Monash. And amongst that was all the ethnic groups, huge diversity in the seat. So, you know, um, had it been this weekend, I would have spent my entire weekend doing Chinese New Year Festival, huge amount of Chinese in the electorate. So I would have been doing, uh, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner, blessing Buddha, eating my way through four tonne of ethnic fare, dancing, uh, sweltering the heat, handing out balloons, going to functions and doing things. And then you'd turn around and fly off to Canberra. It was surreal at times. So how much time do you spend in your electorate looking after those in your electorate as opposed to in Canberra, looking after your career in Canberra, if I could put it that way? Well, I mean, technically you get elected to represent your electorate in Canberra. So that's your job, actually, to go to Parliament and legislate. And so, bizarrely, representing the electorate kind of sometimes is a sideline, but it shouldn't be. It should be the most important thing. You didn't go to Canberra to be your powerful individual. You went to Canberra to be a voice of your community. So, on average, it was 22 weeks of the year in Parliament. It changed a lot. Uh, It used to be a lot more when I was first elected. So, it's sort of be two weeks on, two weeks off, a couple of big breaks in the middle. Um, But for someone like myself with a marginal seat, you know, uh, my time was far more demanding back in the electorate. 
and it literally, you know, some days I'd be in the electorate office all day doing uh, what we'd refer to as constituent visits. That'd be anything from literally the little old lady who'd lost her dog, the man who told me Saddam Hussein had taken his memory, poor individual who had lost... 13 children fleeing Sudan and we were trying to find various family members through the Red Cross to a guy whose wife was being threatened to be thrown out of a nursing home. So you deal with those issues. You'd meet the individuals, you'd talk them through, you'd see whether you could represent them or to send them to the right place to get assistance. Then you'd go visit things like schools, for me, universities, lots of nursing homes, ethnic groups. I'd have lunch with the Italians. I'd do dinner with the Greeks. I'd go to the Macedonians. I wouldn't tell the Greeks I've been to the Macedonians. I wouldn't tell the Macedonians I've been to the Greeks. Good idea. I'd do the Tamils and the Singalese, the same thing, you know. There'd be national days. Then there'd be church services, you know, a new investiture of the Minister of the Uniting Church. You'd go along to that. You'd go to kindergartens and help with Easter egg hunts. You name it, you did it. You know, if there was a a mass gathering and there were votes in it, you'd be there. At a cynical level, but at a level, it was a way of knowing what was the issues of concern within my community. Sounds like an exercise in gastronomy as much as politics. Oh, you've some days. <laughs> oh, some days you'd be, you know, around big events like, um, you know, Christmas, Easter, and then, you know, Orthodox Easter, so you do them twice. Um, Mother's Day used to be a big hit with a lot of the seniors groups. Oh, yeah, you'd be eating your own body weight for every three <laughs> or four days. And then you'd have to remember which national dance you were trying to perform. <laughs> you know, there's a cute Cambodian one where you'd do the flick with the hands or the Greeks and dancing with the Italians. They're very into their, you know, couples dancing and I'm shocking at it, so it'd be mortifying, but yeah. It sounds like it's a big jolt of perspective when you get back to your electorate and also you you become a, well, much more knowledgeable about life in a wider sense because you're experiencing all these cultures without even having to leave your own electorate as opposed to just travelling a lot. And then you get to Canberra and on the flip side, it's, is it managing all those expectations from your electorate with those around you and keeping in mind all those people around you have their expectations from their electorate, do, do things get bogged down in that sense when you're trying to have a great deal of clarity about when you sit in these big green cushy seats to try and move the country forward with big issues? Oh, yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, there's not a unified view, is there? There wouldn't be a unified view from my electorate to begin with about the issues, let alone taking my perspective and adding it to the 100 and other 50 members in the House of Reps and saying, oh, look, we've all got a unified view. We don't. That's why it's a contest of ideas. And you become a captured of Canberra as well because the bureaucracy wants to do something. The government wants to do something. They've got their perspective. You know, an issue that might be bubbling in my electorate, you know, the big controversy about Deakin University building a bridge between two campuses, Now, that was concerning lots of people in my electorate. The rest of the country couldn't care less. You know, they they were worried about fires and floods and closing of factories. And so it was really hard with groups explaining that, look, you're a 10th order priority. I know that sounds harsh, but currently we've got a, you know, the Asian financial crisis going on. That's kind of front of mind. Whether this inappropriate development happens in your backyard, it's not something I'm going to be able to engage the Prime Minister on. So it is a juggle and a perspective, but at the same time understanding for those individuals, that's really important. It is consuming them. Finding someone's lost child, as I did on a couple of occasions for people with migration matters, that was vitally important to them. So it is trying to juggle it all. 
And then you just get into the politics of the day, the theatre of the day. You know, the Banking Royal Commission's the theatre of the moment. It's vitally important, don't get me wrong, but it's not exactly a new phenomena. So that becomes where everybody's focus is at, as opposed to, well, you know, how about let's deal with climate change and Adani. It's a huge juggling act. How much time do you actually spend sitting in those green seats? I read an article not that long ago saying that the government was actually able to adjust the time you actually sit in Parliament. But why is that and why is it adjustable? I would have thought you had a set number of days a year, a bit like school. Yeah, you'd think so. But no, it's actually in the hands of the government. So they move what's known as the sitting schedule. They allocate the days. As I say, when I first got elected, we were actually there a lot longer and for a lot more hours. Over time, they've gotten better at the hours because they were kind of ridiculous when I first got elected. But yeah, they've reduced them more and more. So yes, they actually whittle down the amount of time that Parliament sits. And even when Parliament's sitting, you individually as a member in those big green chairs is pretty minimal. So you'd be down there during question time. You don't have to be, but again, it'd kind of not be a really good thing. Everybody would know that you are missing. You're down there for divisions, as I say, for votes. You might be down there for a really important speech that the Prime Minister or the Leader of the Opposition's giving, and you'd be down there if you're giving a speech yourself. But on the whole, you're in Canberra and you're probably tucked away in your own office, getting on with doing work back for the electorate or for Parliament, you'd be in committee meetings because the only time you're all together with your colleagues, you'd be in caucus meetings, lobbyists would come and see you because you're all stranded in the one building on the hill. So, yeah, it's it's disconcerting that they are reducing the number of hours Parliament sits. So caucus meetings are the party, essentially. I've got that right. Committee meetings, are they divided up when a bill gets presented and then you go off as a committee and work on it? Or is that how to form a bill that you present to Parliament? Oh, it's all those things. So Labor Party has caucus meetings. The Liberal Party has party room. So that's when all the Labor Party members get together. Generally, during a sitting week, it'll be once a week. The same with the Liberal Party and what they refer to as party room. The Nats have a party room as well. And then the Libs and the Nats come together and do a combined party room. So there's all those meetings where you meet with your colleagues and caucus on your own side of politics within your party. There'd be committee meetings of Labor Party people where we would divide and look at things, you know, by subject. We might look at an immigration issue. We might look at education. So people with those interests would come together for meetings. Then there's standing committees of the House. So at the beginning of each parliament, they decide these are the areas that are really important. The House Standing Committee on Economics, the House Standing Committee on Migration. Members from across all parties and the minor parties are elected to these committees. They generally meet once a week during a sitting week. They might investigate a matter. So they'll have an issue they want to look at, but uh, they also may review a bill in a draft form. So a bill's been presented by the government, says, look, this is what we want to do. Could you check it over before we progress with it? Then there's combined committees. So there's House and Senate committees that meet. And then there's individual select committees on a really important topic. So there's lots of committees. Committees just go on all the time. (laughs) And really, it's just to keep all the backbench busy. Okay. So backbench being the the ones that haven't got the fancy title of uh, treasurer or... Yeah, yeah. exactly. They're, They're not a minister, a shadow minister a parliamentary secretary or assistant minister, as they're now calling them, or a you know, shadow or a whip. You don't have a other role within parliament. So, you know, as I said, there's 150 members in the reps, 76 in the Senate. So there's a lot of people to keep entertained. So question time happens 
every time there's a sitting day and it's on television if we want to watch it and sometimes I watch it and I go, this looks like I've just walked in to a year three class and they've just been given three bottles of red cordial each and they're just yelling. It's just chaos. Why does it sound like feeding time at the zoo sometimes, question time? And is it out of order? Do things actually get done? Or is this basically a drama show that we're seeing? Yeah, I used to refer to it as uh, boarding school on steroids or kindergarten hour. So question time is vitally important. Uh, I know that sounds contradictory to what I've said, but it's the time of holding the government to account. Again, you look at parliaments around the world, they don't have this. Even in the House of Commons. Really? Um, yeah, you know, they have question time, but once a week, once a sitting week and for okay. 30 minutes. Prime Minister's question time. Mind you, it's fantastic to watch. It's brilliant. But because um, <laughs> it's just so quick and 650 people jumping and trying to get the call. But in Australia, every sitting day, there is question time, both in the House and the Senate. You very rarely see the Senate because it doesn't have the same theatre. One of the tragedies of allowing question time to be telecast as it has become played more for the grab on the nightly news. Nowadays, the grab instantaneously on whatever device you're watching it on at the time. So some of it is theatre. But at the same time, it is the opportunity to ask the government of the day what they're doing and why and to hold them to account. So sometimes you do get some vitally good answers, information, some gotchas, but... Also, it gives the government of the day the opportunity to say, well, this is what we're doing and why. So I think it's important. Has it deteriorated? Yes, it has. Has society deteriorated in our attitude to people? Probably so. Is Parliament just reflecting what's going on in the outside world? Well, probably not, because if you behave like that at school or your workplace, you'd either be suspended or sacked. And that's the problem. You know, there doesn't seem to be any sort of moderation or ability to hold it into account. So that's when the parliament becomes really important, that the rules should be abided by. Technically, when someone's on their feet and speaking, nobody else should be making a noise. Um, (laughs) You don't see that really happen during question time. Uh, No. Now, you were at the centre of it for 13 months of your 18-year parliamentary career because you were given the prestigious title of the 28th Speaker of the House So only 27 people before you got this uh, privilege, I'm sure you'll call it a privilege, where you got to sit in the middle of it all and try and keep order. Um, How did you become that? And what was the big challenges in that, given the fact that you are still representing your electorate at the same time? Yeah, and the difficulty for me was the circumstances in which I got it. So although I was only Officially given the title of Speaker for 13 months, I actually did it for a year before that in an acting capacity for Peter Slipper. So I did it for almost uh, two and a half years, only a bit over a year where I was actually recognised in the role. So it was doubly difficult. It was the hung parliament. Hung parliament being that there was no clear majority. Yeah, so the government of the day didn't have a majority. It had to rely upon crossbenchers, so people not from the government or actually people from the opposition to carry the legislation of the day, to carry votes of the day. It was a tense time. It was very difficult. Um, But as you say, yeah, I'm going to say it was a privilege. Um, I was only ever the second female. I was one of the youngest people at the time to get the gig and it was an absolute honour. So what you see every day as the farce of question time was like a nanosecond of the actual job as well. You're in charge of running the whole building. You're in charge of the security. You're in charge of the staff. You're in charge of the library. So, really? 
The whole lot. Yeah, the whole lot. The you cafe? The cafe. Because you'd be good at that florist. after your electorate, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and the cafe, the Aussies, is run by, you know, a fantastic Italian family. So that was very relatable. Um, I just probably needed to get some Chinese in as well. But, you know, there was many things that, that went on. So for me, though, given what was happening in the time and the consequences, I really didn't get to concentrate on doing anything to make the place better. It really was just a day-to-day struggle to ensure the parliament met, ran and sat and... It did. Aren't you conflicted, though, as the Speaker of the House? Because you're sitting there and you obviously agree with one side of what's going on, but you actually can't get across your views and you can't be involved in the voting process pretty much most of the time. Oh, yeah, it's very difficult. You know, the Speaker is meant to be seen as independent. You can't be really independent. You're elected as the card-carrying member of one party. But what you have to do is when you're in the chair as the Speaker, you're there, you abide by the rules. So it doesn't matter who's in front of you, what they're doing. The rules are the rules are the rules. Did I sit the Prime Minister of the day down and say she wasn't answering a question, she wasn't being relevant? Yes, I did. Did I get stares like I was going to be lynched from my own people who supposedly were my friends? Yes, I did. But the rules are the rules are the rules. So when you're there as Speaker, you apply those rules impartially. Did I throw the Leader of the Opposition out of the Parliament? Yes, I did. When was that? Uh, I told Mr Abbott on this particular day that if he did something again, then he would know that I had already warned him for that action. If he did it again, I would be forced to ask him to leave the chamber. Uh, 94A, this Speaker's friend, standing order 94A, you would have to leave the chamber for one hour. Uh, I had already told him. And he came to the dispatch box and I started by saying, you know, I've told you, don't abuse this process. He abused the process. And I said, I warned you, you would have to leave the chamber under 94A. All hell erupted. Because it's very uncommon to throw the leader of the opposition out. Did I throw Labor Party members out? Yes. One fateful day, I threw out one of the shadow ministers, the member for Ballarat, and all my colleagues around went, in this way and everyone's looking. Uh, the member for Ballarat was my flatmate and I was going to have to go home to our no flat that night and say, yeah, Catherine, I threw you out. You deserve it. Who was that, Catherine? Yep. Catherine King, the federal member for Ballarat. She and I shared for most of our time. Was it Frosty, the uh, the, the, the conversation that followed yeah, that moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she knew she'd done the wrong thing. Um, so, yes, there's the rules. Apply the rules. Uphold the integrity of the institution we've been there to represent. It took time. Some speakers have struggled with it. I think the current speaker's doing a pretty good job. Last one, is the integrity of the parliament that you speak of, is that getting stretched to almost breaking point or is the way we're set up and our political system, the way it works, it is unbreakable and people have to adjust within that and they'll find a way to adjust as time goes on? Our institution is inscrutable and it will stand at the test of time. The big thing is, will it stand humanity? So that is the difficult question. I think we have, as politicians, trashed the brand so much, the public going, well, a pox on all your houses. Why do we bother? And you can see that in the the numbers who vote. Australia is one of four countries in the world where it's compulsory to vote. So we make you go and vote. I'm sure if we took that away, a lot of people would go, well, you know, bother you. Why do we do it? Look at how you're carrying on. So it is a double-edged sword. But the institution, the rock-solid nature of our electoral system, which is completely above corruption, 
and our parliamentary system, which is the best of the worst systems we've got going, does ensure that our country has a strong democracy where the people's view of who they want to represent them is portrayed on the day, that our judiciary stands independent, our public service serves us well. And unfortunately, if parliamentarians keep undermining that in the public's view, then it'll be whittled away. And I really wouldn't want to see us get to the stage like they have in Venezuela at the moment, where who knows who won that election and they're waiting to the military to decide who's going to back which individual. That would be an abhorrent. Australians would go, sorry, sorry. But, you know, if we start to whittle away our strength in our democracy by the actions of parliamentarians, who knows where it'll lead. And I hope that they can be better selves. Anna Burke from Stepping In intimidated into the role uh, in the mid-90s as a Member of Parliament to talking about magnificent delicacies within your electorate and taking your big ideas to Canberra and trying to get that done to chucking out your flatmate as Speaker of the House. This has been a fascinating chat. Thank you for giving us an insight into the House of Representatives. Thank you for your time. My absolute pleasure. And keep voting. Just do it once. Don't do it multiple times in the same electorate or you'll be in trouble. I'll try not to. Thank you. (laughs) No worries. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.